0: Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com
1: rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories, and include some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high-profile and under-the-radar cases. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and this is a special edition. We're calling this a Survivor's Edition. Our guest today is Glenn Head, who is a successful cartoonist whose work has been featured in The New York Times and in Sports Illustrated, though he much prefers to be called an underground artist. Glenn, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks very much for having me on.
1: We're thrilled that you're here. We have so many questions for you. I wanna explain to everyone why Glenn is here. So Glenn and dozens, perhaps even hundreds of other children were sexually assaulted in New Jersey at a boarding school in the 1970s and the 1980s by the headmaster who turned out to be a serial child sex abuser, a pedophile in charge of the children. That man, Terence Lynch, was convicted and sentenced to prison for those crimes, but the scars and the damage that he did to these innocent children has lived on for decades. Glenn, who is one of the survivors, has just published a graphic novel, a memoir of that horrific period, and in the book, Glenn recounts what happened to him in the form of cartoons. You are an artist, Glenn. So, you know, I read that you said that writing and drawing this book was as close to an exorcism as you could have gotten. Could you tell us about that?
0: Yeah. Um, and that that is pretty accurate. It, it was a lot like that. And it, that particular statement relates to certain elements of the demonic or even satanic that exist in the book. And I relate that to the the headmaster at this boarding school. He used to come in at night and tell bedtime stories, which sometimes were of a kind of ghoulish variety. And this one case in point was he told us about when he was a child and he snuck out at night and he happened upon a gathering of Satanists performing a black mass. And so we were all terrified and freaked out. And he went on at length describing this and then also talked about how Satan sometimes comes to him at night and and tempts him. And so this, for me, was really an exercise in the demonic, as opposed to the exorcism that had to happen from my drawing this. But that was this feeling that I had stepped into a kind of demonic world as a 13-year-old. This is back in 1971, when I was first there. And that world stayed with me. And needed to be exorcised in the form of drawing it, in the form of drawing this, all of this stuff, including that stuff I just described, which is in the book, uh, it had to be drawn out, drawn out of me, sort of a kind of, you know, cartoonist's bloodletting of this experience.
1: You know, it's interesting that, that you talk about drawing it out of you, that sometimes mm-hmm. when something truly traumatic happens to, to a human being, you know, we have many releases. We can try and speak them. We can try to mm-hmm. write it out. And all right. these different versions of releasing that, like, right, releasing that valve can be helpful, obviously. And, and for you, the drawing, would be the, the paramount way of, of releasing that. I want to talk about the the name of the book. It's called Chartwell Manor, and that was the name of the boarding school in New Jersey. Yes, that's right. And so, Glenn, it, this, um, this school that you went to, I, I want people to understand, for, especially because some of, some of our uh, fans will be listening, others will be watching, and we're going to put up some slides from mm-hmm. your book. But Chartwell Manor was um, a former mansion in beautiful, rural Morris County, New Jersey. It was on a a gorgeous Mm -hmm. estate. Uh, This was a school for the
0: privileged. Yes. It was. Yes. I think of it kind of as almost like a high class reform school because kids had ended up there. Things weren't going so well for them in public school. And for a lot of money, uh, parents could offload their kids with somebody who was gonna kind of straighten them out. And that's the whole thing of this, you see, which is British discipline. That's like an essential aspect of the story, which was that this headmaster was a British expat and he was gonna instill the right kind of discipline on these kids. And that's where the story kind of heads into criminal territory insofar as New Jersey actually had laws against corporal punishment being used, and yet it was used like crazy at the school. And the corporal punishment was a very short step from the sexual abuse that would often go with it. So in
1: 1971, you went there for two years. Mm -hmm. You did your seventh and your eighth grade. How did you end up there? Why did your parents send you there?
0: Well, it was one of those thing is, it happened back then insofar as my mother heard about the school from a, another neighborhood mom who had good things to say about it for her kid who got sent there. Her kid had been getting into trouble and then supposedly it straightened him out. And my parents were kind of at their wit's end as to what to do with me because school wasn't going well. I wasn't really what I would really call a really troubled kid myself, but my grades were sort of in the toilet and I was hanging out with the wrong crowd. So it's the kind of thing where you could be funneled into something, no one really realizing what's going to happen to you when you go through that funnel. And that that's sort of the gist of it. There's not much more to it than that. And Aside from that was the fact that kids there had motorcycles, and I had been saving up money to buy one. So if I went there, I could get that motorcycle if my grades were good, and I could ride it around the grounds there. So there were a few different things at work that led to my ending up there, those of them. So Chartwell Manor hmm.
1: had kids ranging in ages from what, five to 15 boys and girls.
0: Yeah, it was more boys than girls, though. There were only approximately, I'd say, 10 girls there, uh, varying in age. But it was mostly boys, yeah.
1: So now I want to ask you, what was your impression as you drove up to this mansion, which, you know, you you feature so prominently in your artwork? Because you had an impression and an immediate feeling to it. And then what was it like once you got in there?
0: Well... It's kind of terrifying on at least two levels. One is that you're about to be dropped off, right, by your parents and your family, and you've been living with them all along, so that's scary. But what was really scary was just the Gothic atmosphere of this place, and it was raining really heavily, like sort of a torrential flood rain thing in the middle of September. It was right before the Attica riots, as I recall, um, in that that fall of uh, 71. And it was really kind of like throwing you for a loop into another world because first of all, you're out of the regular school that you've been in, which hadn't been good, but you're in this other world of this boarding school, which as I keep saying is very Gothic and very dark. And and on top of that, we were told that we were there because we were the elite, the chosen, that only the very best kids go to Chartwell Manor. That also freaks you out a little bit because that wasn't the impression you were under when you found out you were going here. So I guess it's the the best word to describe it is destabilizing mm-hmm. for a kid to be in a Glenn, place like that.
1: how soon was it after you arrived that the abuse started?
0: Uh, I guess when things like that happen, they're never abrupt. So it's like they gradually head into that and initially in a school like that, you know, corporal punishment is on the table. You don't want it. So you do your best not to let it happen. Well, eventually it does because it's on the table. Uh, From there you had the bedtime stories and those are completely disorienting because you're hearing crazy stories about, as I say, Satanism or whatever. And It upends your sense of what is normal. So as I say, gradually it leads to the abuse that actually happens, which would come on the heels of some corporal punishment. When a kid had already been hit, then the kid would be crying, and then they would sit in his lap and he would, you know, comfort them. So you can see where things go from there. That and In terms of chronological time that that would have happened, I suppose it took two and a half to three months before that actually got going.
1: It sounds absolutely terrifying.
0: Yeah, it was. And uh, the the main thing about these things when they're happening to a child, the key word is disorientation. Uh, A child can't necessarily separate out uh the transgression of say love and being embraced from something that's going wrong and going further than that they may know it's wrong but they're confused and children in a context like this when they've been put in another world they're going to be very easily confused and kids were so
1: I was reading, and this was all part of the court case and and, and mm-hmm. um, the reason he was sent to prison, he finally pleaded guilty, is that he would um, use a paddle to spank right. the boys, um, yeah. make them either partially or fully nude. He would do this in a line in front of other children in the classroom or always privately. How would he do this?
0: Well, it varied. It it would happen often enough. If the abuse was really going to happen, that is sex abuse, then he wanted to have you on his own. Um, In other cases, when he was doing this sort of more publicly, it usually wasn't as extreme. Uh, In fact, there were very few incidences of that. That happened in class sometimes when, because he was also a math teacher, that that would happen. In those contexts, it was done in a way that was almost more jokey and that's another thing to keep in mind in a situation like this if the abuse can be dressed up a little bit as something fun or funny or something like that that the kids laugh off then it can be kept going and that kind of criminal enterprise can stay afloat better it actually became much trickier to get away with the stuff that he was doing when he was working out the intimacy angle, which I just described before, because eventually things fall through the cracks and kids are going to tell their parents or they're going to tell somebody. So these kinds of cases, it's always a matter of time. It can it can last for years, as it did even decades. But, you know.
1: did. You know, when he would take the children in privately, those those for those private spankings. And then, I mean, would he try to explain the sexual assault as being part of a medical examination, which is something he he ended up doing? Yeah,
0: yeah, that that was at a different time and a different way, too. Like uh, he would do that before showers, actually. You know, he would do these hernia exams. That's in the book too, I drew that where like kids are lined up and he would he would check them out and I was just avoiding the showers like because I, you know it was a freak out, you know. Um but- in, I
1: it's it's so this I'm so sorry that this happened to you and to all the other children because I mean this is it's absolutely horrific. It's absolutely horrific. Um and so the, I, that's why I so appreciate you helping us to understand because it's always, what is key here for me is believing the children. And, mm. and I want to understand if there was a point, were you er, ever able to tell your parents, who did you tell, who was a child? Because what I was reading in some of the reports is that initially some of the parents didn't believe the children.
0: Yeah, sure. Um that actually occurs throughout the book at various times that I attempt to. Um, but at the same time, the thing that's that's very important to factor in here is that kids, especially young kids, you know, under the age of say fifteen, which practically all of us were. I was thirteen when I was first there. They are there and they need a father figure. That's just a basic aspect of human nature amongst children. So they're kind of ripe for the picking is the best way to put it. The point is that as these things happen, you have kind of a Jim Jones, Jonestown mindset, basically where the kids are told what happens here stays here. And this went on for many years, and he had a lot of angles that he would try to play. There was one one kid I knew, he was a good friend of mine, who was told by Lynch. Lynch explained to him that Lynch had cancer and he wouldn't be around for much longer. So there's all kinds of cards that a guy like this might play so as to keep the party going, so to speak. But... <sighs> In doing that and being that manipulative and pushing it really far, there tends to be a likelihood that the children will believe this to be normal, that this world is normal, this world they live in is normal. And they're sort of between two poles. One is the boarding school and the headmaster. The other is their parents' home and their parents' And because they're spending more time at the boarding school than they are with their parents, their alliances are confused and it becomes unlikely, at least for a while, that the kids will tell the parents. It did happen on occasion, but it didn't happen much. And that's for the reason that you may know that, like, it takes many decades for that abuse not on like a really bad infected splinter to come out so that it can be talked about.
1: And it finally did. I, I do want to talk about your journey, but I, I want people to understand while, while we're hearing these um, horrific stories that there was some accountability here. I, I want, I want you to all understand that these allegations were eventually investigated and prosecuted. Terrence Lynch was held accountable in a criminal court. So the school closed in 1984. And two years later, in 1986, Terrence Lynch, the headmaster, was charged with 103 counts in an indictment for sexually abusing 12 boys and two girls who were students there. And the charges were for abuse that took place over a three-year period the children were between the ages of 10 and 16. He was accused of spanking and, of course, fondling and sexually abusing. He also forced students to perform sex acts on him. He forced children to be photographed for child pornography and then forced to also view that back. His evil and sadistic habit after abusing the children Cuddling them and comforting them, which is so evil, just so evil. Lynch finally pleaded guilty and served seven years of a 16year prison sentence. And I, I have to think that there's a correlation between the school closing and the charges being filed. What do you think finally broke this open and and stopped it?
0: Well, You're correct that there were charges leading up to that point in the court case that, that got him sent away. Uh, There had been kids that had come forward by that time. Uh, The reputation of the school had also suffered dramatically big surprise because there was, there were murmurings of, of all this stuff happening. So as far as I can tell you what, what finally really did it was There were former students who had come forth. And one of them who came forth was a friend of mine, a guy named Jim Schwartz, who he had the goods on Lynch enough. And once the headmaster found out that he was going to testify, that's when Lynch copped the plea because he knew he wasn't going to win. And he knew that if he copped the plea, he might not go away for 30 years. He might only go away for, I don't know, 10 or 15 or something. I think 14 was the exact amount that they, they gave him. And yet he got out after seven. So, but that was what did it. It's, it's kind of like, you know, finally there was somebody and that straw broke the camel's back and that got him put away. But he was a guy who knew how to exploit what he had to exploit. There were plenty of people in the town who spoke well of him you know, parishioners, and et cetera, and other parents who thought the school might have done their kids some good. So he was able to call in favors for quite a while to try and keep himself in the clear. Eventually things caved in, though, because there were too many, you know, over 100 counts, you know, against them. And this guy coming forward, that pretty much did him in. So, Glenn, were you
1: able to tell your parents or to tell anyone what was going on?
0: I was not really able to very well. There's uh, some scenes in the book where it it comes out and there was a real resistance to hearing about it. Um, it's kind of hard for me to know which side to come down on in a case like this. You know, one wants to be sympathetic, but one also has to tell the truth. A book like this, that's what it's really about. And... Um, It's like that Jack Nicholson line, you can't handle the truth. And the fact of it is, it's really hard for people to handle the truth. And I think the reason for that is that people have to feel like they have to turn away rather than face up the things that are truly horrific that have happened to other people. And I think that's one of the reasons for denial about a lot of things. could be Holocaust denial for that matter, where the, the crime might be so enormous. Uh, and that could be on a grand scale of a lot of people, or it could just be your own kid, that it's very difficult to really face it and look at it. And I think it was very, very difficult for my, my parents to be able to face it. I don't think they ever could really, really handle it. And that may be one of the reasons why I had to draw this book because Uh, For me, the truth is the truth, and the truth has to come out. And that's what a book of this kind is about. That's why I don't make myself look like any angel in all of this when I'm at the school, or later on when I'm out of it, because I'm not. And
1: You know, Glenn, there's um, one of the drawings, obviously some of your drawings are much more graphic than others. Some are very disturbing. There's a little bit of humor in there. There's everything. I mean, it's a, it's all a little bit of you. But the one that um, I find the most chilling is, is the one of your mother in the car and she asks you how school is. And I'm fighting back the tears now for that moment because I think as a parent, and I know you're a parent, you know, mm-hmm. You always worry about your kids. You know, I'd sit right. there and wait until, you know, my son would be in the school safely, right? So you as a yeah. parent always think, you know, this is where they're going to be safe. So right. that, that drawing of yours is, is one that emotionally affects me a lot because as a parent, it's the scariest thing some, sometimes to ask, how was your day? How was your week? But right. it's the door opener, right? but I feel yeah. like your door your door wasn't open.
0: Well, look, we live in a different world. That's the first thing that comes to mind when when you say this, because I know exactly how you feel. And me having a kid and having been through what I've been through, first thing I want to be sure is that no such thing would ever happen to my kid. But it's a different world now. And that different world also was like kids learning from a very early age, uh, good touch, bad touch, nobody has a right to touch you, all that kind of stuff. Um, so... That just has to be factored in because we were told for instance when we were kids um never get into a car with a stranger but we were also told to obey adults so how do you square those two things you know what i'm saying and and that's what really is in the mix here because i'm being asked how my week was but i've also been told by my headmaster how my week was right and what is allowable to report so that scene you you may be thinking of is just one where I get in the car and I can't say anything because the mute button has been hit because I simply cannot talk because some horrible had happened and I don't have a vocabulary for it, so I can't say anything. And that's also a classic uh, victim survivor tendency is to just go silent because you don't, have a way of speaking about it you don't you don't have the vocabulary and in a case like this if the parents don't either then there really isn't anything to say
1: i think that's why i found that drawing so powerful so powerful really powerful it 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 was um i was so overwhelmed by it that you know i I went back to the team i said please we need to have him on the program i need to talk to him because Uh, I mean, you're just. And forgive me, I, I don't. Um, you know, I, I may not know much about underground comics and 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 that whole world, but I do know that you so brilliantly conveyed so many feelings and emotions all at once with that drawing, and and it's Thank the you. one that I felt was so powerful. So, yeah. um, does it? Is it? Is it hard for you? I know you've been doing a lot of these conversations and interviews. Is this? Is this hard for you? It's like another exorcism every time you do an interview?
0: No, I guess partly because that exorcism already happened when I drew the book. And initially, it's scary whenever a new book comes out. But that's something that's related to something else, which is that that's just a matter of as an artist, when you create a work and you're into it, it's exciting as hell. And the adrenaline is, is the rush that's keeping the whole thing happening, right? then the rubber hits the road, the book has to go out there and you got to deal with it. So that's just, but that's a different thing entirely. That's just the nature of yourself as an artist and marketing your work and getting it out. As far as it being difficult to talk about, no, this is not hard for me to talk about at all. Um, I think that I processed all this material before I wrote it because I needed to spend a lot of time writing this graphic novel. And then I continued to process it by drawing it. And by that point, that world of that abuse that I lived in was fully formed. So I knew that book was exactly what it was. I knew its strengths. I was very aware of it as an entity. And so anything anybody could tell me about it i was ready for because i drew it you know what i mean i do yeah so uh no i actually enjoy talking about it it's uh surprisingly freeing and you know initially when i was getting a lot of questions about it i would be annoyed by the question of say catharsis you know what i mean i haven't used that word because i saw that in
1: one of your interviews
0: (laughs) (laughs) right As time has gone on, I've actually found out that um, it actually has been cathartic. It has been very freeing, not just to have the book out, but also to talk about the incidents. Uh, So I kind of have to backpedal a little bit and say that, you know, it it was actually very cathartic to get the book, book drawn and then get it out and have people see it. and. The response has also been, you know, very favorable and very positive. So, but I don't really have anything to complain about. Um, I, so.
1: I want to go back a little bit now. I want to go back to, you know, he goes ahead, does the plea deal, he pleads guilty, he goes mm-hmm. to prison. At this point in your life and in the life of your contemporaries, do you all are do you all feel now that that there has been some justice? And did you at the time feel better or were you still really all so young and at the cusp of still trying to process this trauma that had been inflicted on you?
0: Uh, Let's see. Um, I guess the short answer to that question is better than nothing. You know, that he got 14 years was better than him getting no time at all. Uh, the other thing is that, and I've, I've brought this up sometimes to a certain extent, um, my character and myself in relation to this story and as an artist, am a bit of a passive observer. See, I had bad stuff happen to me and this is not, you know, a competition, but simply to say that other kids actually had it a lot worse than me. Okay, so during a lot of my time at Troutwell Manor, all I was doing was drawing as much as I could. I was avoiding Lynch. I was you know, I had bad things happen. But most of the time I was observing and I was drawing and I was listening. And that came in handy in the book because I have a good memory for speech patterns and people's behavior and how they look and act. So I was able to depict Lynch, uh, I think, in a way that pretty much nails him. He he was like this, but I had kind of distanced myself as much as I could. And that's an important aspect to the story here, which is like, it wasn't me. It was my friend, Jim Schwartz, who got him locked up. It was a lot of other kids who ended up in, in fact, terrible situations after boarding school, some of which, you know, case of. Hardcore drug and alcohol abuse, uh, much more than me, and ending up dead, suicide, a lot of this kind of stuff. So to find out that he ended up doing time was in a way to kind of reanimate a corpse, because I had not really that much really been thinking about him. And once I found out that that court case had happened and I needed to look into it, that really dug up that corpse more. And I then did contact some of my contemporaries from the school and found out just how things had gone for them. So it's actually, I don't know about how other people feel when, say, a criminal who took advantage of them and did terrible things is finally sentenced. I don't know if they feel better. I do tend to think that an abuse survivor is often dealing with the feeling of having their finger in a light socket and that that electric jolt can happen at various times to reawaken that trauma. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And um, I think that that stays with you as a survivor for a long time. It, It never goes away. That aspect of abuse is part of your past and it's a scar, you know, and so, yeah.
1: Glenn, one of the things we talk about a lot on this podcast is, what is justice? And it is certainly elusive. It means Mm -hmm. different things to different people. For you, what is justice in this case? Has there been any justice?
0: Well, I can only speak from my own personal point of view. And um, my justice is that I didn't go quietly. And uh, I've said this over the course of the last couple of months since the book came out, that That's my justice. Nobody shuts me up and nobody tells me what I can draw or can't draw. So that's justice. I do the story exactly as it happened, exactly as I experienced that story. And I put it out there. That's justice. Um, For other people, it would be something else. uh, But that's what it is for me, that I wasn't broken by it. You know what I mean? Um, Mm -hmm. I turned it into art and I turned it into entertainment, too. I turned it into a comic book. I turned Lynch into the pedophile, headmaster, underground comics nightmare parody of a human being that he was. And so that's my justice.
1: What's the reaction been to your fellow classmates? How have they accepted or reacted to your book?
0: Um. As far as I know, I, I mean, I, I haven't gotten any negative feedback from anybody. Um, I was I was very happy that recently. I, I sent a copy to this fellow in question, Jim Schwartz, and uh, he, he thought it was wonderful. And that meant a lot to me.
1: I bet um, that did. He,
0: yeah. yeah. I mean, he knew he was in it, but, you know, he's actually the only one in there whose name I didn't change either. Um, but the reaction from former students has been uniformly, you know. I think everybody really wanted it somehow. You know, everybody wants that kind of story to be out there to make it more real. You know what I mean? There, there can be a real tendency. And this is why it's important not to go quietly, because by going quietly, that is to acquiesce to this idea that nothing happened, that whatever, man. And you should never take a whatever man attitude towards trauma. You know, I mean, you don't have to. And so I didn't. And I think that I think most of the students may may feel something like this as well. But, yeah, they they reacted very, very favorably to it. There's even a a private Facebook account for Chartwell Manor uh, alumni who uh, really appreciated it.
1: And there are still lawsuits. There's a I I know there's. There's a current lawsuit where they're still looking for uh, more people to join. Did you ever decide to join any of these lawsuits?
0: I did. That's the only one I got in on because a lot of these uh, alumni had had said, you know, you should get in on that. So I did. And I recently spoke with a lawyer. It's a a lawsuit going against the insurance company that was involved in CharLaw. That's about all I could understand. I don't have a good head for legalese or law or whatever else, but it's a worthwhile case just because um, it's not that I want any of that money. It's that whoever has that money shouldn't have that money, you know? Right. So, it all
1: goes toward justice. It's all about yeah, yeah. justice. It it,
0: yeah, exactly. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be in the hands of the wrong people, whatever, whether it's $5 or 5 million, it shouldn't be theirs, you know?
1: So Lynch ends mm-hmm. up being, let's just say the man was not reformed in prison because his story does not end with your boarding school and going to prison. And this is the part that further turned my stomach. So he was released in 1997. Several years later, Lynch, the former headmaster, volunteered at a Morristown drug and alcohol rehab center called Beginnings. Lynch posed as a doctor, And as part of his pretense, he pretended to examine three men for the purposes really of fondling them. He even spanked them. Lynch was convicted for assaulting those three men in 2007, and he spent one year in the Morris County Jail for charges stemming from those three assaults. Those three men sued and received a settlement of $780,000. It is alleged, it is alleged, I don't know if this is true or whether you have more information on this, but Lynch got this job lead from a parole officer who recommended him for a counseling job because of his educational background.
0: I, I know that he got the job because of his educational background. because I put that in the book, but, um, <laughs> I did not know that a parole officer would have involved in getting him getting him to work, but, Um, Oh, my
1: God. I mean, it's the same thing all over again. Pretending to be a doctor,
0: fondling, pretending to be an exam.
1: It's I mean, there was it's as if prison didn't happen. It's as if nothing happened.
0: Nothing affected him. Well, the one thing I would I would factor into some of this is that, like, he was a real grifter, a real con man and a real talker. And I, I portrayed him that way in the book, you know, as a headmaster. But it's not like that kind of thing is going to change. So a guy who's constantly hustling like that, where the hustle never ends, is going to continue doing it to get himself out of prison as fast as possible, which anybody who's in prison will do. But, you know, and then and then work the same scams he was working before, which is exactly what he did. So um, it's um, unbelievable.
1: I mean, honestly, had if there weren't court records to substantiate this, it's almost hard to believe that he would yeah, no, that he got it's, this job. It's far. really hard
0: to believe. I mean, it's it's weird too because you see Megan's Law, right? That mm-hmm. kept them from being anywhere near kids, and yet his quote unquote educational background got him hired. So it's like, what educational background? So there you unbelievable. Are, you know. So and, you know, Lynch
1: proof. Lynch finally died in two thousand eleven. Yep, and. You know, one could say that it all ended there. Certainly, certainly the abuse, any continued abuse ended with him dying. But really, the scars, as your mm-hmm. book has proved, um, and as all of the survivors are experiencing, I mean, the scars are there. There's, okay. there's no there's no undoing this. So it took you I read it took you five years to put this book together.
0: Yeah, and that was me working full-time seven days a week, too. I, uh, wow. I I wasn't taking any time off except for the occasional holiday here or there and go to the bathroom, which was really it. I was, I was uh, constantly making the book happen, which, you know, relates to um, the other question about, you know, is it hard for me to talk about? It? And it isn't hard for me to talk about, it, and it wasn't hard for me to draw it either. Um, It was very enjoyable drawing this book actually uh sort of much to my surprise but it's my second graphic novel and i had learned a lot about working in that format from the first one i knew just how much work was going to be required and in truth you know see the obvious thing when when people see a book like this and they see this like difficult subject matter the question is was it hard to draw that but the answer to that is that it might be difficult on a lot of levels you know like as an artist drawing kids is completely different from drawing adults like the difference between drawing a horse and a cat they just they their proportions are different they move differently an eight-year-old is a lot different from a 13-year-old physically and a 13-year-old is different from a 17-year-old which is me in the second chapter of the book So. I had to really get on board and study all these kinds of aspects of drawing to be able to make that stuff happen. But I was ready for that challenge, so I found it enjoyable, all five years of it. There's
1: uh, just one last question I want to ask you before we go. Um, Okay. uh, I try and learn from everyone that I interview. Okay. What could have been done differently? And and this stems... A few years ago, I interviewed a, a young girl. She would have been about 16 years old, obviously, with the presence and permission of her parents there. Mm. And she was being abused by a neighbor. And she didn't tell her parents because she didn't want to, her, her point of view was she didn't want to burden her parents. They had just moved. Dad had just had an incident in the hospital. There was so much going on in the family. She felt like mm-hmm. somehow she would break them if she told yeah. them. And And I yeah. asked her, what could anyone have done? Because the thing is, if you don't tell the rest of us, we may pick up on things here or there, but we may not know. What have you learned? What could have or what I should say is, what could anyone have done differently to have helped you to ease your way to have said something sooner? Was there anything?
0: Uh, yeah, there, there are things. and But basically, I think what it boils down to, and I'm glad of this, I just have to say, that the times we live in are better than the times we used to live in. And by that, I don't just mean the 70s and 80s when these kinds of crimes happened all the time. And it's not that they're not happening now. But when they were happening then, there was not a vocabulary through which they could be discussed. They just, you know, child abuse did not yet exist in the collective consciousness. So, But in the following years, uh, the the 90s, for instance, um, when some of this was coming up, in my consciousness, and I was I was having to deal with it. Uh, I found out that it was actually a mistake to bring it up around my peers, say, other artists I knew, because they wouldn't be able to handle it. See, Because see, like what was happening then, my experience in my own world, of comics, was that uh, you better not show weakness. Now that's just that can be a part of the art game. Where I'm going with this, though, is that. I find that the world is a is a better place at this time in that there is more of a mass acceptance and understanding that bad things happen to people, and they should not be shunned for them. And that's a kind of collective growth that I have seen happen over the decades. I really believe that's true. Some of it relates probably, to the Me Too movement, which absolutely insisted on an acknowledgement. You know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. very important that the things that were going on, say with Weinstein or Bill Cosby, be acknowledged. That they be that they be accepted. That those things happened, and that demand was very forceful. Which is what's required. Um, it's it's important that things be put forth, uh, in no uncertain terms, which is really what I did with my book as much as I could. Um, but I mean, people, and this is what I'm trying to say is people are more willing, I think these days to hear stories like this. And if there's one thing that anybody can do better, it's simply to make it known and understood that they're there for you and they are willing to hear what's going on with you, what's going on in your life, what's happened to you, where you're at. So it's basically that, being open to it and not being closed off to it.
1: It's amazing how things have changed in these decades. It really yeah, is. I,
0: I, feel like, I feel like that's true, actually.
1: Yeah, Glenn? This has been a wonderful conversation. I want to thank you for your kindness and um, your openness to discuss something so very difficult and personal. And um, where can people find you? I I follow you on Instagram, but where can people find you? Where can people find the book?
0: Well, um, they can find the book either on Amazon or or they can go to my publisher, which is Thandagraphics Books. Uh, they can go on the website in, in either of those cases and, and buy the book. It's in bookstores. It's in comic shops. Those are open, and if they are. But those two places are good, and uh, I can be found on Instagram, mainly on Instagram. That's my main thing. Uh, Glenhead Comics. And I'm, I'm they're posting something every day, practically. Yes, you so. are. <laughs>
1: Glenn, Glenn, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thanks,
0: thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. It was a great conversation. Really enjoyed Thank- myself. Thank you. Oh,
1: terrific! All right, everyone. Well, this has been a special edition of True Crime Daily, the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm your host, Anna Garcia.